Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, so we've started 2023 pretty strong on this fully functional podcast with, uh, basically only having guests. I was really super excited to have, and we're keeping that trend going by having as, as many longtime listeners know, one of my absolute favorite people, um, in the world, uh, none other than AB Stoddard of, uh, real clear politics and more importantly of my heart. Um, and she is here, uh, to, uh, kick off uh you know our return to the grand tradition of 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 sublime punditry not necessarily rank punditry when she's around so uh ab welcome back jonah it's great to be with you it's always a huge honor to be on the remnant and um i don't know if i can raise my pundit tree level to sublime but i'm because i love you so much i'm really gonna try even if you're phoning it in we get pretty close to sublimity so uh sublimeness sublimity i don't know all right anyway um where to begin uh let's just sort of start with uh i wrote my la times column about this it'll be up on the dispatch by the time this comes out um let's start with the the republican party's newfound fiscal conservatism or re re rediscovered fiscal conservatism um what do you make of the debt limit stuff is it are we actually going to raise it this week um uh or should we just stock up on canned goods now well, it was interesting timing for the Treasury Secretary to come out and right after McCarthy won his speakership um, by selling off everything in the land um, to announce that, you know, we're, we're meeting the ceiling now. Um, extraordinary measures are always taken. We hear this phrase every couple of years, extraordinary measures, and they're always taken to push this off until later. Um, I don't know exactly when that's going to come. We were originally told this would, you know, happen, you know, around the summer. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how quickly we're going to get into negotiations on raising the debt limit, but the, the Republicans um, who, who got ransom payments from Kevin McCarthy are making it pretty clear that they, they got to play this game for a while. They can't buckle now. So Bob Good, who turns out to be one of the the biggest mouth uh, of the rebel of the twenty rebels, who said, you know, he in one of in some of the final hours, he said, "I'm never going to vote for Kevin McCarthy." So you can just stop asking me. He's, you know, he said sometime over the weekend that he can't imagine how reckless it would be for Democrats to not negotiate on requisite spending cuts for raising the debt limit, and that they would be risking shutting the government down, and they would be risking default. So. You know, if you talk to moderate Republicans who have just left the Congress or are still in it, they will say, we know how this ends. Uh, we have a Democratic Senate and Democratic White House, and we're going to end up having a bunch of us join it with Democrats um, on some Senate bill. And we're going to and McCarthy's going to have to allow it to happen. Um, and he's going to catch, you know, he's going to jump off a cliff. I mean, it, it could be the end of his speakership, but we're not going to default on the debt. This is, you know, what they say privately. Um, 
and and that will that will be um, really difficult for McCarthy. I mean, he's trying to help them right now, um, his his newfound bosses, and say we've really got to be responsible and stop this madness and all this spending. And he's trying to to go along with the narrative as long as he can. It helps them raise money and it makes them all feel good. And he wants to be aligned with them for as long as he can. I don't know when this comes to an end, but my feeling is that we're not going to default and it's going to end just badly for McCarthy um, and his, um, and, you know, and his short lived career as speaker. But I, I, I don't really see that, you know, what, even the, even negotiating on this, as we all recall in 2011, and it seems more recent than it should, which makes me feel old, even the negotiations, you know, cost us a credit rating downgrade. So even getting to the table and playing games with these numbers and talking about this and wasting time and having show votes is in and of itself a danger to, to global markets. So maybe McCarthy lets it get there again, but the general consensus is we're not going to default, but he has to play the game and make them feel good and talk the talk as long as he possibly can. So I, I should just clarify a couple of quick things. When you when you talk about, so listeners know, when you talk about extraordinary measures, that's actually a term of art from the Treasury Department that when, the, when we hit the debt ceiling, they're just a whole bunch of uh, maneuvers that they can pull where they hold off paying off this thing for a little while and they kick the can over here so that we can still make social security payments and that kind of stuff, but it only lasts so long, right? You can only sort of um, punt on your cable bill before um, you still can't make your mortgage, right? It's that kind of thing. And when you talk about feeling old, like there was a time where I would have given some cover to the, well, yeah, to the, like the text, like rather than the subtext, right? Not, rather than like the, the cynical interpretation of all this. Like, I actually agree with the language, the boilerplate language of Kevin McCarthy and these guys about, you know, debt. All that. The problem is um, we've seen we've seen this movie so many times before and we saw how they spent under Trump that I now can no longer see like the House Freedom Caucus as actually sincere about any of their stuff, right? Because... When they were, I agree with them entirely when they were digging, not entirely, because some of them were lunkheads, but I agreed with them in in principle about excessive spending under Obama and deficits and debt. And I was a Tea party kind of guy and all that kind of thing. But when you see all of that go away, when it's no longer, what, what I came to, this is what the LA Times column was about, what I came to conclude, which is not exactly a blisteringly new insight now, is that the deficit hawkery is really only attractive to a large set of Republicans when it is a way to own the libs or when it is a way to be a troublemaker when you're out of power. But it just completely disappears for most of them when it doesn't. And and I'm going to have Brian Riedel from the Manhattan Institute on to talk about budget stuff uh, for the next pod so we don't have to get too deep in the weeds on this. But the thing that I thought was like such a real indicator of where the GOP is on this kind of stuff is the Club for Growth's attacks on Mitch Daniels. Um, I mean, we remember when the Club for Growth, I mean, the Club for Growth used to be a serious cut spending, yeah. limited government, economic freedom kind of thing. And now it's one of these great examples of donor capture, you know, where they went MAGA and so they went MAGA with them. And the idea that Mitch, Mitch Daniels, the line in the attack ad is, forgot how to fight. Right. When he was like literally the most successful budget cutter, both at Purdue and as governor of Indiana, um, it's just it's so depressing. And that's and that's sort of how I see, you know, that's more revealing of where the GOP really is than the rhetoric coming out of, of the Republican conference in Capitol Hill. Yeah, it's pretty repulsive. The organizing principle of the Club for Growth was getting us to balance. And people like Paul Ryan, who once was, you know, before he was even speaker, had a huge following within the Republican Party and was a leader and was budget committee chairman, had convinced, you know, or, or was of like mind um, that we were faced with a bunch of his colleagues that we were and voters that we were going to face a debt crisis and that one party was going to be serious about this. Uh, and it wasn't just to own the libs. It was actually about changing our trajectory 
which is dangerous and reckless. No, Paul tried to persuade the libs, which is what right. you're supposed exactly. to do. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 then you know Trump comes in and and says to his credit bluntly, I'm not going to do any of this stuff. Like I am not going to tell the voters I'm taking anything from them. Politics is, politics is transactional. I'm going to they get any entitlement they want. The sky's the limit. And so now for the Republicans to pretend that they've relocated their fiscal rectitude is is beyond belief. But again, I I don't, just like you, I'm not really sure that they even have a plan because Chip Roy, who everyone is giving all the credit for being the most legitimate negotiator and he doesn't play games and he's not just trying to be like an Instagram star um, or a future OAN anchor. And so he says, we never, ever, ever discuss defense cuts. And he says, you know, we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. It's just going to be discretionary spending. Well, we all know that that's not where you get to balance. So that's kind of ridiculous. And then Jim Jordan is trying to say on Fox two weekends ago that we can find the requisite savings by get, getting rid of too many generals. <laughs> he doesn't like the ratio of generals to enlisted. And if we just get rid of a bunch of generals and then we quote, de-woke the military, we're just, we're going to find the requisite savings. I mean, all of this is complete BS. And anyone who's followed this issue and is concerned about the debt, I mean, any Republican voter who still believes that, that we're heading to a debt crisis and one party needs to be serious about it, knows that what Jordan's saying is a load of crap and that none of them have, they're talking, they're not even unified rebels, right, in in what their plan is. Do you, you know, and then of course the defense hawks are like, no, you can't, you can't do this as we face these rising threats from the Chinese and the Russians, you have to make a deal on Medicare. So they're not even on the same page as they go, you know, against the rhinos and the establishment and the Democrats. So Again, I agree with you. A, I watched what happened in the Trump years when they didn't care, and now I, I, I'd respect you know a, a real plan. If twenty people agreed on a real plan, it would it would be something. But there isn't even a plan. So getting back to this, and I, and, and I don't mean this in in the remotely ungentlemanly way because I'm you know I'm decades older than you are, but. Um, this feeling old thing. It's like there's certain debates in Washington, like debt ceiling fights, government shutdown fights, filibuster fights, supreme, you know, getting rid of the filibuster, getting rid of uh, Supreme Court nomination fights where, I mean, I hate saying things like this, where, but like cynicism is really the only safe harbor for wisdom, right? I mean, like, because we've seen, them just like switch jerseys at halftime on so many of these issues you know depending on whether you're you're controlling the senate or not about getting rid of the filibuster uh you know some judge you know is found some judicial nominee to the supreme court is i don't know found with a uh a, a dead woman or a live boy in his trunk and like everyone <laughs> the other party saying this is outrageous this disqualifies them and then the other nominee from the other party comes along three years later and it's a it's a De it's a dead boy and a live hooker in the trunk. And like, this is completely <laughs> different. Right. And, um, and I just, I, 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 I worry about this as a professional pundit about, I mean, I, I, I I'm so heartened by like Jack, Ger the memory of Jack Germond, <laughs> who was exhausted by every single, you know, <laughs> principled argument <laughs> of talking points on any show, because he was just like, yeah, we've seen this before. We know why they're doing this. Um, but like, how do you overcome that? I mean, do you have a, you, do, first of all, do you feel the same way about some of these things? Maybe you think there's a lot more sincerity on these things than I do. Uh, no, no, no. I actually have, um, not only do I have some PTSD, but I have like a, a sort of a low grade rage about this stuff. Because if you recall, and I actually had to recently look it up, the, we went in from 2011, uh, we had the, the credit rating down, credit rating downgrade, debt default debate. Then, of course, no one, then we didn't default. In 2012, we had the fiscal cliff that led to this massive confrontation where John, poor John Boehner had to tell his, his caucus that, you know, they would raise it to taxes only over those who earned 400000 And he had his colleagues tell him, I'm not going to walk the plank for you. I've never voted for a tax increase, and I never will. Most of the members were new. 
on that vote, his own leadership, Kevin McCarthy and Eric Cantor voted against the, the, the leader. Um, and other people had to sort of walk the plank uh, for him. And later that year, Ted Cruz told his voters that um, Republicans had the votes to defund Obamacare. So now we're into 2013. And then they shut down the government in 2013 because he was raising money like a house on fire with a website with a donate click you know, button um, saying that voters, Republicans just had to have the courage because they had the votes, which of course wasn't true. And realizing, I remember getting going crazy on this on Fox and getting some, you know, angry voicemails and emails from people. One old lady screaming at me, calling him, telling me not to criticize Tom Cruise, which is <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite, like, reader, viewer voicemails ever. But the point is, when you and I can sit here and say we've seen this before, but when are the voters going to stop sending these people money? that they raise over these performative bullshit battles that are um, really at this point designed to raise money and, and not actually meet a policy goal and, and, and create substantive change. And it's just so frustrating to me that it still works for them. That's so, not only am I so sick of just being here and I was never, ever, ever right and Charles Krauthammer was never, ever wrong, except for one thing, which is that he believed in the power of the super committee. And I told him it would go nowhere. And he ended up with the sequester. So, and he can, he couldn't believe that at that one time he had not been cynical enough. And so, yes, I'm so cynical. I'm so burnt out from it. And I'm just so furious at these people that this still works for them uh, as a tool to raise their, to amplify their, their stature in MAGA world and to raise money. Yeah. The, um, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, like all of the people who said flatly that the new GOP conference, their first thing that they did was defund these the $87 billion for the IRS. Mission, mission accomplished, right? I mean, they, they didn't make it sound like we, we successfully voted to do it, right? They literally said straight up on their Twitter feeds and on their Instagram and on the Facebook and, and, and on cable news, they said, we did it we defunded the IRS or we defunded the 87 billion for new IRS agents. And they did nothing of the sort. Right. I mean, like, and, and, um, and it does remind me like this period that you're talking about, you know, the, the defund Obamacare stuff where Ted Cruz said that you could do it. And, and Sean Hannity and a lot of people said it said that you could, uh, get rid of Obamacare and overcome the filibuster with just 40 votes. If, if you want, if you had the courage to do it, <laughs> right and it's very much like the, the just the green lantern theory of politics which is just like if you just have enough willpower you know the actual rules of the senate and the number of votes don't matter right, right. and um anti-math and um and but the complaint that they always made which i always thought had a lot of merit and i've talked about this a bunch of times on here i'm sure with you is too is that you know they always used to say the establishment overpromised and underdelivered. right and and I think that's correct. The establishment did overpromise and underdeliver. Like Paul Ryan used to say, if we just win this one next election, we can get rid of Obamacare. And it wasn't true. You know, and I, I think maybe he was fooling himself. I'm not saying he was just deliberately lying, but like he was a politician and he 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 sold people a, you know, the establishment sold people a bill of goods on that kind of stuff. But what always gets left out of that is that the the insurgents, the rebels, the populists, the net, whatever we're supposed to call them, you know, the pre-MAGA MAGA people, they overpromised and underdelivered too. And so I wonder what happens when it dawns on people to say, hey, by the way, you know, they all lied when they said they got rid of those IRS agents. That's not going to happen. It's not even going to get probably voted on in the Senate, never mind like could pass, you know, clear a Biden's desk. Um, and I agree with you. The the BS that comes from the 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 right bothers me, and it bothers me more than what comes from the left because I expect it from the left. But it's worth it's just worth pointing out that this really is a bipartisan problem. You know, when when Bernie Sanders says it would be so easy to make everybody a millionaire and give people the Green New Deal and Medicare for all and all of these kinds of things, um, it's the same kind of populist pandering 
where you tell people everything is so easy. And the problem with that is that the second you don't succeed, you have to blame somebody. You have to say that some unseen forces, you know, the for for Sanders crowd, it's the millionaires and billionaires, right? And the special interests who stopped it. And now these days for the right, it's the deep state or the rhino establishment that stopped it. And the reality is, is that no one stopped it. It was just never going anywhere in the first place because it was a stupid performative piece of symbolic policy. I mean, like the Green New Deal for $12 trillion was never going to happen. Um, and uh, and this is, I think, this is why the, I really believed in the free speech arguments in the Citizen United case. But as a matter of policy, forget the constitutional question for a second. This country would be so much better off if only the Republican Party could give money to Republican candidates and only the Democratic Party could give money to Democratic candidates. Oh, man, because this is back to our, you know, primal scream about the death of the parties. I mean, if you can't stop insurgents, if you can't choose candidates and if you don't control the the important money, then then this is what you have. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene as the ascendant and because she... I just, Fred Upton just told me he was the former energy and commerce chair, that she raises more money in a quarter than he raised as energy and commerce chair in a cycle. <laughs> and so this is a system that incentivizes, you know, whatever, whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene. So it incentivizes all this outrage and, and all this deconstruction and instead of problem solving. And, and yes, we would be much better off if the parties controlled the money and then we, they would weed out crazy candidates. To your point about Bernie, I, I, I can't listen to another word from him pretending that like the lowest I'll go is like 18 trillion or whatever he did during Build Back Better. This was my absolute floor. But the thing is that they don't seem to raise as much money as people do on the right. They don't seem to be as rewarded by their voters. And what really makes me sick is clearly people like Matt Gates and, and people like that, they've learned from Donald Trump starting in 2015 that you actually can just tell blatant lies and say that something's going to magically appear, like the wall is already here, um, and that you will be believed and that you will raise money. And and I'm not, I don't want to say that progressive left-wing voters pay more attention than um, right-wing voters do to the facts. But for some reason, the right has been much more successful. Donald Trump raised $250 million for a, quote, election defense fund that didn't exist. And all of that just makes me crazy because it it amplifies these voices, it strengthens them, and it, and it, um, it, it, it continues the it strengthens this system that we have that we know is so screwed. No, I think about this in a weird way. Like you, you would hear all the time, you know, people talking about how Biden created inflation. That's a different argument. But uh, and that inflation is eating away at old people's retirement savings and their discretionary income and gas is so expensive and heating is so expensive. And yet for at least some significant subset of those people, they lost more money donating to completely bogus political causes voluntarily than they lost because of inflation or, or anything that <laughs> Biden was doing. You know I mean? It's like, like the little old lady who says, I can't pay, I can't pay for my prescriptions. And that's why I gave the maximum amount to the stop the steal pack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just, it's sad. And there a lot of, a lot of old people are being conned out of, Money they can't afford to spend, and then it's going towards nothing productive. Never mind what they want it to go for. Oh, it's so cruel, and it's a repeat donation, and they don't know that. And the whole thing is—it's no, it's—it's it's just, it's just a sickness, really. And um, but these people are going to ride, ride it as long as it works, and it worked for Ted Cruz. For I mean, really, that whole government shutdown in thirteen was really—he was the star of that, and he didn't seem to pay a price for that. And that was, of course, pre whatever Trump and all this stuff. It, it, it's it, it's madness. And I, I, I don't. There's no one like Boehner to come out and say, you know, I'm 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 sick of taking crap from Heritage Action, or you know, no one's going to bite back. Yeah, yeah. 
No, and, and instead, like I was saying about the Club for Growth, the Club for Growth and the Heritage Foundation, never mind Heritage Action, Heritage Foundation has just gone complete MAGA. It's, you know, the, Kevin Roberts, the president of it, if you follow his Twitter feed, which I try not to do, you know, it's 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 all of this populist boob bait about, you know, we're taking on the establishment. The Heritage Foundation, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars a budget it has, and it's like ranked by the University of Pennsylvania as the second most influential think tank in the world oh, it's, and it's been Lord. around for like 50 years and um this idea that there are these insurgents taking on you know the big powers and stuff and it's just all marketing and but the marketing is affecting you know what what heritage is supposed to be doing all right um got some of that out of our system what do you make of uh biden's um, mess, hot mess, hot, stinky. You can see it from space mess. Yeah. I just don't think we can all, uh, I'm kind of in agreement with you, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Just to start with a cliche, you can't obviously compare the situation with Donald Trump likely obstructed justice and had his lawyers lie. This is not, this is a totally separate situation. Joe Biden comes into this presidency as the most experienced president ever in the history of this country. As a senator for 40 whatever years, as, an, as a vice president for eight, he has no shred of an excuse for this level of incompetence or disorganization if it was indeed a mistake, no excuse. And so it's a huge political hit for him in a different way than Trump, but it's easily what about it, as you agree. And so it, it, it the idea that there could be more caches here or there in other locations is just really, it, it, it's, it's really a problem for him. And, and they, um, I don't like their disorganized response. And the truth is, for me, I, I assign nefarious intent to everything Trump does, and he's really never proven me wrong. But I expected the staff of Joe Biden to be the um, most competent. And this this is bad for them. Yeah, I mean, like, so I, I'm not a big fan of all this blaming the staff stuff, for in part for the reason that you suggest, is the like, Biden's been around long enough that he should just simply have procedures and ground rules and processes in place and all that kind of stuff. But I will say, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a prominent lawyer about this this morning, and the one place where I do kind of believe that the staff screwed him is in the waning days of the Obama administration, right, where Biden is apparently like flying around trying to rack up frequent flyer miles or something, and they're cleaning out stuff. Like, this is something a lot of people don't know, but like at the end of particularly two-term administrations, the really competent people have long left, long ago left, right? They've they've cashed out. They've gone gotten great jobs. They've gone to go get the CEO, you know, the head of Uber or whatever. And you only have interns left who have real titles. Right. And so then you have, so like, and now we're talking about what was probably the C team for the vice president. Right. Right. Now, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody in particular. I'm just saying that as a general rule, like, the last two years of a eight term eight year vice presidency, like no one with really great prospects is hanging around, you know, think oh, this is going to springboard me to, you know, the 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 head of you know the Ma National Association of Manufacturers, um, and so it's possible that it really was just a sort of a crappy team that screwed stuff up. I suspect when all the dust clears, we're going to find out that this stuff was part of Biden's research for working on a book. Yeah. Um, it sounds like, you know, Andy McCarthy makes a strong case that, you know, the stuff that was classified sort of matched up with stuff that was in the book and blah, 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 blah. That's not an excuse, you know? Um, uh, but by definition, you can't have classified material in an envelope that says personal. Um, and, and so anyway, I just, this is another one of these places where like, Anybody who tries to get too sanctimonious in, in criticizing Biden or or in criticizing Trump or in criticizing or in defending either, you know, like take a beat because everybody looks really stupid and really bad here, even though I think is 
abundantly clear that what Trump did was far, far worse. Yeah, exactly. And, and just Biden's whole, Biden's strength in the primary and his strength against Trump was that he was competent and he was experienced and that we were going to have like order in this mess. And so uh, I think this really, and he, my goodness, the, the 60 minutes thing, I don't care if he said it before he knew or after, he still said this is really irresponsible. So he's eaten it. And again, you know, the standard in the law is is what you did is not whether what you did was better or worse than what your predecessor did. It's like, it's like, did you violate the law? And, um, um, but so do you think it's just like the prosecution thing is just a non-starter now for Trump or what do you think is going to happen there? It's so interesting. I mean, I, right. I'm, I sort of look at, I, I kind of see the, the point of someone like, you know, uh, of Nick Cataggio, is that how you pronounce his? I'll append it to his fans, yeah. I completely, on the one hand, see his point, and on the other hand, see Andrew Weissman's point, who's an insider from DOJ and knows how their mind meld, you know, uh, works, that by that appointing a special counter, counsel for Biden lets you proceed with, with indicting Trump. Um, because you're, you know, you're doing your due diligence. Um, I also see why it makes it go away. I mean, I, I, it's it's really hard to read the tea leaves on that. Um, I, there could be more stuff on the Mar-a-Lago documents that we don't know that is hideous. In which case, I think he will be he will be indicted. Um, if it ends up being not so much of a big deal, maybe not. And they focus more, I mean, they, they are still looking at him for January 6th. And that's a huge federal investigation. It's the biggest crime ever committed in this country. And he's in that investigation and in that he's in the web of that. Um, so it's, it's just really hard from here to see it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what we're going to, it's going to slowly dawn on a lot of people that the really relevant standard isn't what Biden did or what Trump did. It's what Comey did with Hillary Clinton and the stated criteria that he gave when he decided not to indict um, or, or, or prosecute or whatever is that um, that's a really convenient standard for both Biden and Trump. Right. And um, because what she did was so purposeful, right. What she did was sort of knowingly wrong and um, um, or at least that you can make that charge. Certainly if a normal person did what she did, create a whole new home server that was not cleared for classified material just right. for her own convenience, uh, uh, they would go, they would be in real trouble. And I think that that's politically, that's sort of a get out of jail free card for, for, for both of these guys. Um, but maybe not. I mean, I, I, I think that the, um, the decision to prosecute or to indict, um, ultimately is one that you know the president of the united states by omission or commission is going to have to make and i, I find this idea that it's just going to be merrick garland i've always found that really kind of implausible um but because at the end of the day merrick garland's authority derives entirely from the president of the united states and so even if you're outsourcing that decision to somebody else you still it's still sort of your decision i'd like to hope not i maybe i'm naive but so you're not cynical enough I know. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that's, I guess that's true. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's it's just really hard to see now. And then does Biden not run? Does he run? All of it, you know. Does Trump run? Does he not? Something happen to hobble him before he's really in a nominating con? You know, I don't know. It's just so hard to see, to fast forward. So, like, you know how in the midterms, the Democrats did that really horrible thing of, like, boosting, signal boosting the the really MAGA bad election denier people because they'd be easier opponents. Yeah. There is a school of thought out there. I don't actually subscribe to it because, but that because it is kind of obvious that it's in Biden's interest to run against Trump instead of say DeSantis or somebody else. Certainly the polling says that Biden would beat Trump, but not DeSantis that you could see movement to play that strategy again and figure out not indict, so that Trump is clear to run because they would rather run against Trump than anybody else. I'm not sure Merrick Garland would play along with that kind of thing, 
but um um it is kind of obvious that in a deeply and profoundly cynical way it's in biden's interest um that trump run and um because that gives him that buys all sorts of permission to be joe biden that other candidates you know would not grant him oh that is so dangerous um yeah i I mean first of all i think the trump's gonna be indicted in georgia but um in terms of the federal prosecution that's a different question and we should be clear you can be indicted and still run for president so some of this you know yes 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 of course I see, though, it gives him a clearer deck. I mean, I, I, he, he'd run no matter how many <laughs> indictments he was facing. I understand that. I think he's going to run without a health um, event. But the weird thing for me is that I, I just still, in my absolute gut, believe that Joe Biden is not going to run. And I'm like the only one in town. And I wrote this um, once for the bulwark, twice for real clear between July and November. I've written this three times. And um, no Democrat will talk to me as a result because I'm the big bummer. But he cannot run again because of his age. And that's the end of the story. He has positioned himself perfectly to be a one-term president. He has passed more bipartisan consequential legislation than Obama or Trump or George Bush could have hoped for. And um, it's extremely impressive. He defied history in the midterms. He's united the West against Vladimir Putin. But he cannot tell us at 82 that he can serve until 86 and he is setting up the country and definitely his party if it's a small event, but the country if it's larger for a crisis. Um, and I think having Kamala Harris as president is a crisis, but anyway, so, I mean, a smaller crisis, but, but I think it is beyond the imagination that Joe Biden runs. And I'm the only one who, I think I found it like a completely untenable. And so, Maybe he made that decision before Christmas and he's keeping it close to the vest, or maybe he's about to launch a campaign. But it is, uh, I believe that he knows he's tired and old, and I believe he's tired and old, and he will be much more tired and old nine months from now. And I think he can do the job for the next two years. But people are talking about him running for president as if he's going to do it at Memorial Day. Yeah, He's going to do it two years from, I mean, a year and a half from now. This is madness. He has just... This this next week, it'll be half of his term that he's served. And so I don't find this possible. Is the pressure to announce it now to make sure that the, no one else joins the field? The best thing for him to do is to announce it early so that there is an extended open primary. And it gives the ultimate nominee a very long and rigorous process that helps them legitimately unite the party. The longer he waits, the worse it is for the party. But you say the longer he waits to announce he's not running. Okay, I'm crazy. I know everyone thinks he's running. I believe he's not running. I mean, the look on his wife's face every time he stands up in public, have you seen it? Yeah. But I guess I guess he's getting ready to launch another campaign. That's what they keep they they've definitely planted a whole bunch of stories that say he's gearing up to launch another campaign. I, I just think it's madness. I, I can't wrap my head around it. First of all, on the age thing, I completely agree with you. And it's not ageism. I mean, the age, the actual number matters to some extent, right? But different people age differently, you know? Um, but I, you know what, Jonah, and let's be fair to Joe Biden. It actually just is the number. I think he could be a senator like Chuck Grassley, who's about to turn 90. But I don't think he should be president after the age of, of 82. I think he'll be fine to finish his term. I really do. But I, don't, but I don't think he should run a campaign. And I don't think he should be president for the next four years after that. I mean, the image I always, and also, so like, this is part of my problem with with this talking point that has sort of been incepted into so much of sort of mainstream punditry these days, which is that he's the only guy who can beat Trump and he knows how to do it. And he's got, I heard just this morning on, on, you know, Morning Joe, there's like this, this phrase that you hear all the time, they've got the playbook. And... And the thing is, they don't have the playbook. <laughs> right. The playbook in 2020 required him to be in the basement for much of the campaign. Yes, yes. And stay out of people's faces and 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 say nice patriotic things about bipartisanship and a return to normalcy and all that kind of stuff. The guy running for re-election in 2024 will have been president for four years and people have a much different Im- impression of who he is than who he was. And, and that's also true of Trump, right? But like, and I still think he could beat Trump, 
but it's just a completely different playbook. And he can't say return to normalcy when he's talking about how, you know, mass forgiveness and loans and pulling out of Afghanistan. And he can't talk about super competence after Afghanistan and the classified documents thing. It's just that he's a different candidate. And it doesn't feel like the economy is going to be so friggin' hot that he can just ride that. And so it's it's reckless to think that he can win, to think it's so obvious that he can win when even if all of that stuff wasn't true, to your point, all it would take is one stumble. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be cruel about this, but like one stumble down the steps coming off of Air Force One, and that's all she wrote. I mean, old people, when they fall, they can break a hip. They can they can go into a coma. I mean, it's just... Do you remember when Bob Dole killed off, uh, killed over, fell off the stage at Chico State or whatever that college was in California? I mean, that was that it. That was terrifying, yeah. And the thing is, he was like 68 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's so not fair. And Bob Dole was completely copious until the very end. You know that he did a... He did a podcast like two weeks before he died. I mean, he, did he, really? he had a sharp mind and was fighting cancer deep in his 90s. Like he could have done anything. He could have been president in his 80s. For sure. But I don't yeah. think anybody should. No, I agree. It's a, it's it's a it's an incredibly taxing thing. And um and like just the malapropisms, right? I mean, like as as you and I know, you know, people talk about how it's, it's such a sign of his senility that he says these crazy things. I would argue that if you got a team of really good researchers and interns to chronicle the ratio of crazy statements uh, in Biden's speech, he said crazier stuff 40 years ago than he does today. I mean, I, my standard joke on the on, on, in speeches is th it's a well-established finding in the social science literature that at any given moment, Joe Biden could start yelling, get these squirrels off. Of <laughs> um, and so like, He's actually much more restrained and disciplined now, but like now when he says weird stuff, it makes people think he's got, you know, early stage dementia or something. I know. But back then he was just like zany Joe and I knew him back then. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with him and, and it's true. He, he just popped off. I, I don't know. And, but I, but what I do know is when he said to his staff, you know, a few years ago, I should just pledge to serve one term. Like he knew it then, you know? He knows his son is a troubled human being with like baby mamas everywhere and it's everything's a mess and it's going to be a horrible year for Hunter Biden and it's going to crush the family and and Joe Biden just I just think that he knows it. I don't think he's one of these egomaniacs who believes he has to run for a second term. And I believe if he announces for one Jonah that he does it because he was told by Jim Clyburn and others that the party's still a mess. And that without him, they're going to just perish in flames. But I mean, like, it's it's a really fascinating sort of game theory thing. Like, if he announced he's not running, he will be lionized as one of the greatest statesmen the Democratic Party has ever produced. Right. And you'll get gold watches from everybody. Everyone will think what a heroic thing he did. I mean, I, I think James Polk, like, maybe the only other comparison or something like that. I have to go look that up. So don't hold me to that. But like, um, you know, promises made, promises done he said in the campaign that he wanted to be a bridge to the next generation of progressive leaders and everybody who would be attacking him you know for running if he ran again if they thought like they could beat him will instead be singing his praises and you'll actually that legacy would actually probably be pretty good as an organizing principle for the democratic party and that's a great point and instead if he, but if he runs yeah, you get to be pre you have a non-trivial chance, you know, a better than 50-50 chance of being president again. But very few presidencies end second terms end well regardless of age and you're going to have to drag your deeply troubled screw up of a son across the finish line and um you just feel like Jill should have this conversation, you know. I have assumed all along that she was on the same page. I mean, the look, she has the most electric smile. You know, she's a really upbeat person. And in the last kind of year, not the first year, I've just noticed at those public events, she has a very worried look on her face. Like she's on high alert looking for where he's going to walk and what's going to go on. And and I just, um, I, I think that after all that they've been through, which is too much, uh, they need 
it's just so clear, right? They need to go be with their grandkids and take care of their family and Hunter and all his grandkids, all his kids and whatever's going on. And, and it is, um, it just seems surreal, this idea of him running again. Hey, so this just popped into my head because uh, it popped into my head. Um, I did do a CNN hit over the Martin Luther King Day weekend, and one of the premises is that Democrats are really concerned because turnout among black voters is is ebbing a little bit. Um, and it is. It's also ebbing a little bit among Hispanics. Not in huge numbers, but the problem is, is that when you need massive turnout from minority demographics, um, just having kind of normal turnout from minority demographics isn't good enough, right? You just need to have the gain at like 11, particularly for the black folk. And I don't know, it seems to me, I was thinking about writing this piece, it's a little fraught, but at this point, it seems to me the Democratic Party for the long term needs to care more about the fact that it's losing white voters. Um, I'm not talking about like white supremacists or racists or anything like that. I'm talking about like you're... Like people forget this country is 74, 72%, depending on what numbers you go by white, white people are going to be the majority of voters for a very long time. And if you lose black people make up 13% of the vote, you know, and I know they're concentrated in certain battleground States that makes them more powerful in some places and all that kind of thing. But all you need is like Hispanics to go become sort of like nor like, like just the median voter and black voter voter turnout to just dip by five or ten percent, and the Democratic Party has a huge problem. And I, I was thinking about this because, like, Elise Stefanik's district, where I happened to be this summer, and I was like, oh, "Wow, this is Elise Stefanik's district." Um, was a was a two time Obama district but before it was redistricted. Yeah, but like you still you look around and you're like, like you would not think all of these white liberal people with pretty you know, performative farmhouses and whatnot have gone, have gone all Trumpy on you. Um, but like, we've seen this. this is, anyway, anyway, my point is like demographically, do you think the Democratic Party has actually realized that the sort of the, the hard version of that, you know, coalition of the ascendant thing and the bad lessons from the Obama campaign um, has taken them to heart? Or do you think, you know, like, long-term the democratic party who has longer term more problems demographically the republican party or the democratic party well that's so interesting that's the question i mean technically democrats picked up white voters uh in 2020 in that election so i mean biden picked up some from trump right some white men so that that was and that was good news in, in 2020 there was also bad news for democrats which is that they lost um, black and, and um, Hispanic voters to Republicans. Um, Republicans held those numbers pretty well, apparently in the 22, in the midterms, which, you know, it's not, it's not really a great, and, you know, midterms are hard to gauge. So we'll know more out of the next presidential, whether or not this is a, a permanent flight from the Democratic Party on the part of these Hispanic voters. Um, but beyond the Rio Grande Valley and Miami-Dade County and Florida. But it is, um, I think that, the, I think Democrats have to be concerned about the fact that they're losing Hispanic and Black voters. I, I do, because that's been traditionally part of their coalition. Any kind of erosion like that, um, they, they, need to, they need to focus on why uh, that's happening. Probably a lot of over-promising and under-delivering. Um, but it, largely Gen Z is, is, you know, pretty checked out and, and, but for the Dobbs decision, they probably wouldn't have turned out in the 2022 election. That said, I, I what I think is the most important thing for Joe Biden to do if he's not running or if he's running is to remind the party that the median voter is white, non-college, mid fifties, and that the party has to nominate someone that can win in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or they, they will continue to lose the Electoral College, um, which Joe Biden almost did by fewer than 45,000 votes, uh, and to make that, to really make that a North Star. And that's really important that 
the party wrestle with that because they are going to be locked out of power in the Senate soon for a really long time. Um, I don't think they're going to be able to nominate another, confirm another Supreme Court justice. Last time they did so was 10 years ago until Ketanji Brown Jackson. It could be a really long time because of their liability in the Senate, um, the way that the Senate is structured. I, I just, I think that that's a conversation Democrats need to have. So I agree with you that, that ignoring the fact that the Electoral College victory is made <laughs> through winning over white non-college over the age of 50 voters. But I also think that they need to do, they need to do some due diligence on why they've lost Hispanic and black voters. Um, I do get that a lot of it is just apathy. Um, Hispanic voters are really actually, I think, get, being energized to vote for uh, Republicans. On the part of Black voters, I just think you see a lot of checking out because they're tired of being told that all this change is coming and they don't get criminal justice reform or police reform and they don't get voting rights. And they were told that with, uh, just like this math question, right? They, just like um, passing th something through the Senate with 40 votes and getting rid of Obamacare. Like they were told that all these amazing things were going to happen with Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote in the Senate, you know, all of which were filibustered and failed. Um, and they shouldn't have been told that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act was coming. And they shouldn't have been told the police reform was coming. Um, but but they were told that. And so um, I, I think that they'll, they'll have to really, uh, Democrats will have to be sober about why they're losing Black men predominantly, why they're losing Hispanic voters. And I've argued since before, I knew that they had lost them, that they were um, ignoring the Rust Belt and ignoring the 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 path to a hold on the White House um, is is through those places. And if you're gonna if you're gonna lose Wisconsin, forget about it. I, I have this, uh, and, and the, I, I want to say this is all just sort of shooting the breeze conjecture right now, and I, I got to do more due diligence on it. But um, you know, I'm a, I'm a I have a tendency to rant about like how dumb Latinx is and, you know, and, um, and how using the phrase birthing person, um, oh, that infuriates me. Is, I, right. I so like, but I, so I'm not going to rehearse all that again, but like those are reflective of people who are listening to very online, very, um, woke advisors inside of a bubble right if like you think that like you are expanding your coalition going around dropping sort of more consonants and vowels than a than in the name of a U yugoslavian cab driver um after lgbtqixpxyv whatever right if you think that's adding to your coalition rather than sort of narrowing your appeal to people who know what it means then you're you're in a bubble right and I do wonder to what extent, obviously it's not the same thing, but we all take it for granted because basically every, um, every black politician, not every, but a lot of black politicians, a lot of black activists um, who get airtime on NPR, on cable news or whatever, they're all of one voice about how what black voters care about most is the voting rights stuff and all of that. And, um, it seems to me that the representatives of these groups care most about that. And I think it's sincere, but like, is it actually true that you're, if you just sort of took the median black voter that they might say it in terms of like social desirability bias, where they think this is what we're supposed to say when a pollster asks us what we care about most, but is it actually what they care about most? Um, and I, I just don't know that that's the case. And like one of the reasons why, and I, I realize there are problems with this, example but we've been hearing nonstop for five ten years about how racist georgia is about how the voting rolls are the voting system is rigged against black people and all that. and there's some merit to some of those complaints i think there's also a lot of hype whatever that we don't have to talk about that as a matter of messaging from stacy abrams forward we've been just hearing about how it's like you know if not jim crow 2.0 then really really bad for black people and yet Georgia is fast on its way to becoming like one of the blackest. It's like the second most black people have moved there. Uh, most black people live there as a ratio other than I think Mississippi and 
hundreds of thousands of black people have moved to to Georgia in the last 10 years. So clearly, at least some of these black people do not care so much about the messaging about the voting rights stuff to keep them from actually wanting to live in this state that they have been told is so terrible to black people. And uh, you see what I'm saying? I think that there's a mismatch between the official agenda uh, that we're being told defines the black electorate uh, because it's in the interest of the Al Sharpton crowd to say that um, versus like how you could actually go, like you could go at black vote, black male voters by, you know, talking about the economy or jobs or, you know, whatever um, in ways that you go after the Hispanic vote and the white vote, you know, the blue collar vote tends to be voting on blue collar stuff a lot too. And, or maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? No, I, this, you're absolutely right. You're talking about the median black voter who cares about inflation and uh, how to have health care that you can rely on as you grow older and your parents age and um, the price of gas and, and the price of eggs. And, and that's, they care about what everybody cares about. I'm just talking about the base of the Democratic Party, the base vote, black voters have been promised, we're going to do these things that that you that you you know that are priorities for you, and they and so as a result, Democrats have a hard time organizing and getting out the vote among base black voters, just the way that the base, you know, Trump's base requires. Um, you know, a certain position on uh, certain promises on immigration. I mean, it's kind of just this fundamental, um, there's a wish list and you've got to always run on it and you've got to be working towards it. And I I think that you're right, that they would be much better off trying to use their resources to reach these voters on other issues. Um, And I hate the words kitchen table, but um, all the issues that most voters care about, which is job growth and wage, you know, increases and, and gas and, 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 and everything, affordability basically. And so, um, I, I, I just think the, I was just sickened by what they were promising these people, um, when they knew that Joe Manchin was never going to make it happen. Yeah, more of the over-promising and under-delivering, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and I do think generally Democrats have such an advantage with Generation Z uh, over the Republicans, but that doesn't mean those people are going to turn out to vote. I think they were really angry about Roe, and that was a factor now. But I really wonder what it's going to be like in 2024 and going forward um, in terms of trying to engage these people that are not Republicans and prefer the Democrats, but do not see it in their interest to get in the car and go vote. Like they think it's a complete waste of time. They're just they're disgusted by politics. They're detached from uh, the process. They don't want to engage, and and that overall is is the Democrats' problems. It's not, um, we you know we can't deliver on voting rights. It's it's you've got to make sure these people believe um, that that it's worth being in the process, and that you have a better record on the price of prescription drugs, the price of gas, um, wages, uh, economic growth, et cetera. All right, I just realized I'm supposed to be at a meeting downtown in 22 minutes, so oh, okay. uh, I think we're going to have to call it a day. I love having you on. I love being on, Jonah. Thank you so much. we got to have you back soon. Next time, I want to weigh in on um, deer contraception. Okay. I think that's an important issue. It's a, it's a pressing issue, and, um, uh, um, and I've gotten some really interesting uh, feedback from some listeners about how we could... <laughs> we could use markets to fix some of this stuff if we were, because part of the problem, so this one guy in the comment section, I thought made a really good point. I actually sent it to a colleague said we should turn this into a piece. Um, uh, the, the population control with deer is basically predicated on killing the bucks. And the problem is, is that you can have, you're not going to kill all of the bucks. And so long as the girl deer are still around and fertile, the reduced population of bucks is not sufficient to actually reduce the population because they get around. Um, And one of the things that would really be helpful is if 
uh, restaurants were allowed to serve venison that people hunt, um, mm. create a market for it. So there's an yeah. incentive. I mean, I like they tried to do this a while ago with the, the lionfish in the Caribbean that were like really invasive and destructive. And they started putting it on a lot of menus to get fishermen to start pulling them out of the water. Um, they try to do that with bounties with the Burmese pythons and the Everglades. I think, you know, we need to create a market for more venison burgers, you know, at, uh, at restaurants. Anyway, there's so much to discuss here. Yes, this is great strategy. I'm, I'm just, I'm so interested in your interest in this. And I think these are good <laughs> solutions. Okay. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Okay, AB has left the studio. I now have to be downtown in 19 minutes. So I'm going to keep it short. Uh, I'm recording later today uh, a podcast with Brian Riedel um, from Manhattan Institute. So we can do our eat your spinach. Uh, we're all going to um, uh, go bankrupt um, podcast, which you have to do every time the debt ceiling or government shutdown comes up. And Brian's one of my go-to guys for that kind of thing. Uh, thanks again to AB. Thank, thank you, everybody else. Um, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.